Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, uh, April the 3rd, 2023. The conversation, the public debate about whether or not we should regulate technology continues unabated. The latest issue is whether or not we should regulate AI, these um, uh, GPT-4 style AI uh, conversational engines. There was an open letter last week signed, uh, surprisingly enough, by Elon Musk and a number of other leading uh, technologists, including Steve Wozniak, um, who who co-founded Apple and Yuval Noah Harari, a very influential writer about the need to pause in their language AI. Not everyone agrees. My old friend Keith Tier, who has a regular weekly tech wrap-up show uh, on Keenon, uh, yesterday suggested that trying to pause AI was like uh, the equivalent of King Canute trying to pause the waves on the ocean. Uh, it's an interesting debate, and there was an interesting piece uh, in the FT about uh, whether or not we should regulate AI by Jamie Suskind, a UK-based technology writer. He's been on the show before. And he said, Jess, we need a more sophisticated debate. It can't just, in his language, be either whether we regulate it or don't. We need 21st century solutions to uh, 21st century problems. I'm not sure my guest today, however, would uh, agree. Uh, Gaia Bernstein is the author of a new book. It's just out this week, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. She's certainly in the regulatory camp when it comes to social media and online platforms. And she seems to think that we can find um, examples from history, particularly when it comes to the regulation of the tobacco and fast food industries to make sense of today's addictive technologies. She's joining us from New York City. She teaches at Seton Hall Law School. Uh, Gaia, welcome and congratulations. Um, Is that a fair uh, overview of your book? Do you believe that, um, that we can indeed find perhaps 20th century solutions to these 21st century problems? So thank you for having me. I think we will find 21st century solutions to this 20th century, these 21st century problems. I don't think we're ever going to go back to things the way they were in the uh, 20th century. We're not going to back go back to a screenless, uh, unconnected world, and I don't think we want to. I think we want to keep many of these conveniences and the information we have, but I I think we have this. Uh, adoration for technology that somehow to promote our welfare and we head into this without thinking the subtitle of uh, of your new book is um, gaining control over addictive technologies what are exactly these technologies is it everything on the internet guy or is it only certain platforms or video games or or, or social media applications the addictive designs are all over the internet. Uh, basically, there are certain designs which are everywhere that are more prominent, I would say, on games and social media. 
but uh, the fact that we get uh, likes and comments and even our emails in a way, we keep checking to see whether there's, a, there's more of it. And we have it in our devices, which are everywhere. So it's not even just, you know, a specific application issue. It's even the devices we're holding where we have access to our email and to our text all the time. And we're constantly looking for this next reward because this is based on the intermittent reward model, on this idea that our brains uh, secret uh, more, more with neurotransmitter dopamine when we get rewards on an irregular basis. So sometimes we get the email we want, sometimes we don't. And for social networks and for games, it's even much more intensive. Uh, last year, a couple of years ago, we had the psychologist Nicholas Carderas, Dr. Carderas on the show. He has a new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis. Carderas actually blurbed your book, suggesting that it's a very good read and should be read in, in conjunction with Digital Madness. Do you believe that these addictive technologies, Gaia, are they contributing to the mental health crisis of the contemporary age? Are they the reason for our new age, it seems, of anxiety? You know, I think maybe two, three years ago, people were not sure. It was, uh, there, was, there was lots of data from 2010 showing that there's increase in the suicide rates and anxiety and depression. But I would say in the last two or three years, there's much more uh, research showing that there's actually a, a connection between the two, between the time that uh, social media and smartphones became prominent. That's the time when these addictive technologies became much more addictive and much more in our lives. And also at the same time, we got the evidence coming leaking out of the tech industry. Uh, Frances Hogan basically testified before Congress, she worked for Facebook, and she said that Facebook knew they had evidence that uh, kids who spend much more time on their screens uh, are affected and have worse mental health outcomes. And they knew that the algorithms which make it addictive is what's causing it, and they still decided they will keep going because it was so important for their revenue. Guy, you're the mother of three children, and um, you suggest in the book that while you're also a law professor, very well, uh, very familiar with uh, the law and technology, that this book is driven by the, the Gaia Bernstein, who's the mother. Is, is that fair? Have you seen, have you had a front row on the addictive quality of, of technology? So, you know, my kids uh, basically grew up through that. So it was not just my kids, but I, I was a mom. I was going to birthday parties and I was going to school shows. At a certain time, I noticed, I think it was around 2009, 10, that things were changing. Um, and more and more, I saw kids sitting in birthday parties, just looking at their screens. And instead of playing with each other, I would go to a, a school show and I would see iPads in front of me and cameras instead of seeing the show. And so, yes, it came from the fact that I was surrounded by all of this by virtue of having three kids growing up with this. And of course, I wanted a better future for my kids, but I think it was not just a personal thing to me. In a way, my kids were more aware because I was talking about this the whole time. It was more... Um, getting the idea that something is seriously wrong and wanting to do something about it. I don't want to 
the Keith tier because that's a hard thing to do. But my guess is if Keith was on this show, he would say to you, yeah, I kind of respect what you're saying, guy. He also has three children. But there's always been this fear every time there's a new technology, whether it's reading or the radio or the printing press or television or the Internet in the 1990s. What is different about this? You know, I really struggled with this at the beginning. I was thinking, is it just me, you know, saying what the new, the young generation is doing is wrong and what my generation did was right? And I think TV is probably the best thing to look at because for years people said TV is bad, kids are spending all the time watching TV. And I think all these things are on a spectrum. You know, there's, of course, there's a connection between spending time on screens and spending time on TV. The issue is, has something changed dramatically that it's beyond the natural progression of things in a way that we have lost something that we normally would not lose so i think several things happened here first of all uh before like if you think about tv everybody was watching at the same time it was like the human bonfire now you can see people sitting in the same room looking at different screens they're no longer connecting in addition yes tv was People wanted to watch a lot of TV, but there wasn't this whole business model based on sucking our time in quite devious ways. I mean, basically, the tech industry gives us all our products for free, Gmail for free and Facebook for free. But the model is based on our time and and data. And there's yeah, it's the attention of- economy. We've done many shows on it. We did one, for example, with Casey Schwartz on attention um there was an interesting piece uh on your book in wired uh talking about uh, a self-help trap the issue of of course of self-help when it comes to social media and addictions is an age-old one my old friend tiffany schlein has been on the show many times she's the author of 24 6 the power of unplugging one day a week some people might say um uh gaia well just unplug one day a week, uh, uh, buy Tiffany's book, uh, take her recipe and manifest our agency, our, our ability to control ourselves or control this technology by simply putting the phone or the computer in a drawer for 24 hours a week. W- what is your critique of that? What, what is this idea of a, a self-help trap and how has technology addiction created this? So basically, first of all, uh, you know, people have been aware of this problem, I would say, significantly since 2018. And naturally, people went to psychologists to, and these were the first authors of the book, people were offering self-help methods. And then the thing is, despite all these books, despite um, what we have is what the tech industry put as like digital well-being tools, like the fact that we can know how much time we spend on our iPhone, we have screen time. Despite all of this, first of all, even in 2019, before the pandemic, screen time just went up. Of course, there was a huge bump in the pandemic, but now again, it's still going up. And I think what's most disturbing about all of this is the tech industry basically are trying to move they shift the blame away from them so this is a really well-known defense mechanism that uh, cigarette companies use that uh, food companies use basically you 
the user, and by the way, no other industry calls the consumer the user. You, the user, chose to do this. You're responsible. But you can choose differently. And here, we're giving you the tools. So at first, when people got the option to turn off certain apps on their phones or limit their time, they did it. The thing is, people became the solution. And the result of this, people are blaming themselves, exactly like the tech industry wanted them to do. Are there particular tech companies that you think are, are responsible? Are the, the larger companies, Facebook, for example, Google, uh, Apple even, uh, are, are there particular companies in Silicon Valley that, are, uh, that have perfected this model of shifting the blame to the user? Well, I think Google has this huge well-being uh, department. I mean, they I mean, came up with the most unbelievable tools, like, you know, an envelope. You could put your phone inside. And then you can just use it for very specific functions and you can see how long you can keep it inside. That's like putting a cigarette pack inside an envelope. So Google has done a lot of it. But, you know, then this whole thing spread. Apple on its phones has tried to put all these tools. Google also put it on its phones. And But all the social networks are having, are giving parents ways to limit, basically to put warnings for their kids. You can also put warnings for yourselves. Um, TikTok has this video series saying you're in control. So it's not every, and and the game makers who are basically have a lot of these tools. I mean, they actually argued when they were blamed. They argued that you know the users are choosing to play, and the they or their parents are responsible. But isn't there some truth to that? I mean, it's like television companies can't take responsibility. People choose to watch a TV show. Uh, they choose to watch a TV show. Uh, you, you can't expect a television company or any media company to want to be regulated. So, Right, absolutely. The thing is, they have gone a step further. They hired groups of psychologists to tap into our deepest human vulnerabilities, taking very well-known psychology experiments and basically incorporating them into the design like it took away our stopping cues the infinite scroll there's never an end to a page on twitter and instagram and facebook and that's from a famous experiment about soup that people ate more soup when they had a bowl where they couldn't see the bottom versus people who could see the bottom of the soup so i think when you take things further and when the only thing that matters to you is to get people on your product, but not just for a little time, but for most of the waking hours. We adults spend at least five hours on their phone alone a day. So it's like we have not, we've never really been able to make a choice. That's what we want. It's not just one product we're spending, you know, 10 minutes on, 15 minutes on. Guy, you've you mentioned soup and the the uh, the bottomless soup bowl. And you use the example of the food industry as something we can learn from in terms of regulating tech. But it seems to me, whilst food has been regulated, that the other or one of the other major crises in America today and in the West generally, apart from the crisis of attention and tech addiction, is the crisis of obesity. So what has the food industry done that we can learn from in terms of controlling addictive technologies? So the food industry has done something which has worked partially. They were under a lot of pressure, especially where kids were concerned. 
So they came together to, uh, they had an agreement not to advertise to children, uh, said food with a low quality, um, low nutritional quality. So this was helpful in some ways, but still it was very partial. But is that, uh, you know, when I, when I watch sports, for example, on television, every second ad is for fast food. And whilst it's not specifically directed to children, I'm guessing that 20, 30, 40% of the viewers are kids. Yeah, so that's exactly one of the problems. So what can we learn? I mean, if, if, if they figured out a way around it and people are getting fatter and fatter and eating more and more fast food. The, the other issue, it seems to me on this stuff is, um, I, I'm sure you've done a good job as a parent managing the social media and digital technological um, consumption of your kids. Um, has this become a, a class issue where poorer people are more and more addicted and the wealthy, the well-connected, those able to afford one kind of media literacy or another are able to control their addiction? So first of all, I don't think anybody's controlling their addiction. I don't think that parents- Nobody? You mean everyone's addicted? I think that parents are not very successful at controlling their kids. And I don't think they basically can really regulate them once they hit middle school. It doesn't work. Uh, but the whole social life is in social networks. So I, so I don't think anybody is doing is successful here. And I also think that it's not a class issue. I actually read a project in many different schools, including Newark public schools. So the difference was like what kinds of screens are students using. So I noticed that the kids in some public schools were less well off. They were more on the phone than on the computer. But and it was cheaper in a way. But People, the fact is everybody's spending so much time on the screens and nobody is, not, the well-to-do parents I know in Manhattan and parents who have less time and are working, nobody is successful in, in stopping this. So it has the same impact on one-parent families as wealthy families in, in Manhattan, you're saying? It doesn't really make any difference, this technique? I don't think it makes a difference. I think, you know... Um, no, I think the only thing that makes would make a difference is, is systemic change. I don't think parents should be in the middle of this. I think they feel horrible. They feel like they are powerless, and it's. So you take parents. So, so okay. So I I take your point. You take parents out of the equation. What what would that look like? Can you can you give me the outline of a of, of a regime that for you makes sense in terms of controlling this addictive technology that would take the parents out the firing line so i think first of all some things have to change in the way technology companies design their products there are some features which are there for no reason whatsoever but to keep people online for as long as possible then there's the whole business model which you said that you had lots of shows on so basically as long as there's a business model based on our time there will always be pressure on them to exert more uh, to find new designs so the issue is do we want to have this as the main business model can things change will things change with antitrust enforcement so that's one part of it another part is changing the defaults of the uh, devices so right now, yes, you can uh, change the, you can limit your time on, on, the, on certain apps, but it's not a default. And that makes a big difference. 
because when somebody is the default, people some, people think feel it's a recommendation, and they're less likely to change it. So that already changes a lot. And another thing, we don't really have mainstream devices which are sort of middle of the way. You have phone for kids, and we have some stuff, but you don't have like Apple is not producing a phone that just gives you some options that you really want, but doesn't targets you with constant notifications and with every possible connection to the internet. So I think there are ways to exert pressure on tech companies. And I think we have to think about how to change the spaces we live in. How can this really play out in a concrete way? You note in the Wired piece that uh, parents are suing social media. That Mm -hmm. may be one of the ways in which the tobacco industry was undermined. But can we learn from... You're a professor of law. Is all this going to begin in the courts? And can we learn from the legal assault on the tobacco industry? My guess is, and I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, is that the connection between illness and the tobacco industry is a much tighter, narrower one than the relationship between digital technology and one kind of addictive illness or another. But perhaps you might explain how this could work outside the government within the court? So, first of all, I agree that tobacco and technology are very different because technology is a mixture of good and bad, and we know that tobacco is just vile. So that's a difference. I think we can learn a lot from what happened, and one of the things we can learn is that court is only part of the story. The fight against tobacco is surprising for us now, but it took decades to get to where we are today when, you know, planes are smokeless, bars are smokeless, restaurants are smokeless, and people are smoking far less, although, of course, there's e-cigarettes now. And, but it took so long to get there. And it's, so it's not just one uh, point of pressure. It's legislation. It's su- people suing. It's the Federal Trade Commission. It will take time. And but I think we can learn from what succeed what succeeded in the past. So as I said, the tobacco company also had this idea that you know uh, the consumers are to blame. So when consumers went to court, uh, the tobacco companies uh, and, and they sued the tobacco companies for being sick for dying. The tobacco company said, "Well, you chose to smoke. You're responsible." And this went on for decades, but this broke at a certain point. So we can see where it broke. It broke, for example, when Intent to Addict came out. It became evident uh, that cigarette companies were purposefully addicting their uh, consumers. It also broke with children, because we don't think that children are choosing. And to this day, children under 21 cannot go into the store and just buy cigarettes. And so I think that's a lot to think about when we're looking at uh, how things will change for all of us with tech addiction. It will start with children because it's we feel we're okay about being paternalistic towards children and telling them what not to do. And it's also uh, people feel that they all the legislation has been basically to uh, protect kids. But if you take technology addictive uh, features out of phones or websites, it will eventually affect all of us. So I think there are lots of lessons to learn and also how things may evolve in, in a, not, uh, uh, a, a le- not a great way. 
Talking about learning from history, talk about success in the past, I wonder what the history of prohibition might teach us both in a negative and positive way about this. Of course, the, the idea of prohibition grew throughout much of the late part of the 19th century and then was imposed in America at the beginning of the 20th century. It was broadly a failure. It was uh, undone by Franklin Roosevelt when he came to power in 1933. What it resulted in was, ironically enough, more people drinking, more people doing it illegally. It was impossible to regulate. Um, it resulted in the rise of gangs and uh, lots of violence. Uh, women became perhaps more addicted to alcohol after regulation, uh, after prohibition than they were before. Would you be fearful that if indeed some of the stuff you want, this this more this harsher regulatory regime when it comes to digital technology, would you be fearful that we would see an explosion of, of illegal technology, an underground industry of, of tech? We already have the dark web, which is bad enough. But it's not very hard for kids to smuggle phones into bathrooms. And we can't keep control of them all the time. And perhaps some people might be worried that what you're suggesting is just the other side of a surveillance capitalism regime. So I think basically I would never suggest that we should not have, speaking about adults, that we should not have social networks. We should not have the internet. I'm just... I just think that we can re redesign these things to have different options. Children are a different story. And as I said, we don't have a problem telling kids they cannot smoke. So of course, this is not people, kids are still smoking today, but at the same time, they're smoking far less, they're starting to smoke at the older age, they're less likely to become addicted. So yes, if you try to regulate things, you will still have even kids, of course, on social networks, but you will have fewer of them. You might have the critical mass doing something else. Right now, the kids cannot choose because they cannot choose not to be on Instagram or TikTok or nothing because they won't have a social life. It's more than a social life, though, Guy. Um, we did a show last week with Edward Lee, one of one of the uh, the thinkers on NFTs and the promise of ta of creators taking control of their work with Web three O. Web3 technologies like uh, NFTs built on the blockchain mm -hmm. for kids to define themselves, to manifest their creativity, to articulate their social identity and indeed their sexuality. They need these social networks. So how are you going to how are you going to make sure that children are able to evolve? I, I take your point on addiction. But many kids will say, for example, when it comes to their sexuality or their ability to talk to people who uh, are outside their community, that these technologies are actually liberating. Right. The question is, does this have to look this way? First of all, kids can go. Not all content is the same. Kids can go in groups which are not social networks. There are lots of group forms on the Internet where they could join. But it's not basically based on likes, on uh, comments, on... Wait, uh, so you're saying they shouldn't go on Twitter, but they can go on other networks? Which are the other networks that you approve of? 
Actually, I was not thinking about kids on Twitter. I'm thinking or about Facebook kids or, or, TikTok or, or, or Instagram. Which which are the networks you approve of? I wish this network would change. That's the main thing I would say. And I think right now these networks are not the greatest place for kids because they are not. Many of them are not doing anything meaningful. They are just feeling worse about themselves. So my hope that is that kids will get in them on an older age. And that with time, we will have alternatives of groups, activities, and interactions which are not based on just getting kids to the network. If you think about snap streaks, kids have to send a comment back, to, back and forth in 24 hours. Otherwise, they lose their streaks of friends. Then the contact is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is you go back on Snapchat and you post something so you keep your streak. That's not about development. That's not about uh, learning anything. That's just about giving revenue to Snapchat. Let's end, Gaia, uh, going back to where we started on AI and this GPT-4 open AI revolution that's obsessing people out here in Silicon Valley. How do you expect AI to play into the unwired world that you write about, about addictive technology? Is AI a new chapter in addictive technology or is it something entirely different or is it something that will make technology even more addictive? If it knows us, it knows exactly how to addict us. It definitely, AI is already part of the, you know, the algorithms that are addicting us. But I think the whole thing about ChatGPT is people are so surprised it's things out of control. We've just been not paying attention to what's been happening for years. These things have been out of control for years. Something about Jack GPT made people finally pay attention. And I guess from, for that, I'm hopeful.